Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpackers, and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, Episode 16. Based on what I've said in previous episodes, some listeners have responded a little indignantly. They say, Joe, you claim we should just mindlessly obey the Catholic Church. What in the world makes you think the Church has any authority to tell us what to do? That's a really good question. I sometimes forget that most Catholics don't understand the Church's authority. They've been told all their lives that they're supposed to obey the Church, but no one has ever explained to them why they're obligated to obey. Let's tackle that when we come back. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts, and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, He usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for Him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the Lay Evangelist Handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. I explain the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. The step-by-step process for sharing the faith. I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Those who confronted me about the church's authority asked some really good questions, and they've got a right to have them answered. Perhaps the biggest objection people have had about my assertion that we've got to obey the church has been the sexual abuse scandals. They rightly ask by what authority the Pope and bishops have to tell us what to do when some of them frolic in the beds of other men while others cover up for them. Answering these wholly justifiable questions requires several things on my part, and I'll try to make it as coherent as I can. But before I begin to explain these things, let me point out a few important facts. First of all, the majority of bishops and priests are good men who live their priestly vow of celibacy. In my opinion, any priest who lives his vow acts heroically. Thanks be to God, I'm not a priest because I'm not sure I could be faithful to the priestly vow of celibacy. And I love Jesus, his church, and the priesthood. 
The second thing I want to point out is that this minority of priests and bishops who betrayed us and the church are nothing new under the sun. Judas was the first traitor, after all, and Jesus told us there would always be traitors. All throughout our 2,000-year history, there have always been traitors. Next, we have to understand that there's a difference between the church, which is divine, and the men charged with administering it, men who are human. Finally, I'm a convert. I didn't become a Catholic because I married one. After having studied a minimum of eight hours a day, seven days a week for nine consecutive months, an estimated 2,100 hours of study, I became Catholic because I became convinced of the truths of Catholicism. I forced the person helping me to prove every aspect of the faith. Unless you think I'm a booger-eating moron, I think this is a pretty good endorsement of the Catholic faith. There are several things in this episode I want to explain. That the Catholic Church was established by Jesus, thus making it divine and not human. That Jesus established the Church's mission and how that mission was and is to be carried out. That the Church is infallible when teaching about faith and morals. And that the Church is immutable, that is, that she will last until the end of time. So let's get started with Jesus establishing the Catholic Church. When talking about religion, I find it sad when I hear people say things like, the only thing that matters is that we all believe in the same God, or one religion is just as good as another, or let's just agree to disagree. Why are these comments saddening? Well, they all demonstrate a scandal of Christianity. The scandal is that there are so many Christian religions to choose from that people have become indifferent to the whole idea of thinking about which church is the right one. But we Catholics can honestly and should assertively say Jesus, the God-man, founded one religion, and that religion is the Catholic Church. There are a number of proofs that the Catholic Church was founded by Christ. The first one I always point to is history. John Henry Cardinal Newman, arguably the greatest Christian apologist of the 19th century, was a member of the Oxford Movement, which is a vehemently anti-Catholic organization in England. Fellow members tasked the young Anglican scholar with writing a history of Christianity. On the day his new Christian history was rolling off the printing press, Newman was being received into the Catholic Church. When asked what caused him to turn from his vehement anti-Catholicism so much that he actually became a Catholic, his response was quite simple. He said to know history is to be Catholic. Why? Because history alone proves that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ. Until the year 1517, a mere 502 years ago, there was no other Christian religion beside the Catholic Church. That Jesus founded the Catholic Church can also be proven from sacred scripture. The establishment of the church came in the very act where Jesus made St. Peter the first pope. Matthew 16, 13-19 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is an incredibly pregnant passage. Now let's begin breaking it down. The most telling point about the divine origins of the church is the papacy. Non-Catholics, particularly those who are not exactly friends of the Catholic Church, all tell us there's nothing in the Bible about the papacy or St. Peter being the first pope. That couldn't be further from the truth. Biblical evidence for the papacy is overwhelming. Following the logical presentation of Carl Keating in his modern classical work, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, we find the evidence to be absolutely irrefutable. Keating notes first that St. Peter was almost always named first in the Gospels listing of the Apostles, and that sometimes the Apostles were referred to only as Peter and those who were with him. He points out that St. Peter was the first of the Apostles to preach, the first to perform a healing miracle, and the one to whom the revelation came that Christianity was for Gentiles as well as for Jews. Keating goes on to tell us that Peter's preeminent position among the apostles was symbolized at the very beginning of his relationship to Christ, although the implications were only slowly unfolded. At their first meeting, Christ told Simon that his name thereafter would be Peter, which translates as rock. The startling thing was that in the Old Testament, only God was called a rock. The word was never used as a proper name for a man. If one were to turn to a companion and say, from now on your name is asparagus, people would wonder, why asparagus? What is the meaning of it? Indeed, why Peter for Simon the fisherman? Why give him as a name a word only used for God for this moment? Christ was not given to meaningless gestures, and neither were the Jews as a whole when it came to names. Giving a new name meant that the status of the person was changed, such as when Abram was changed to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Eliakim to Joachim, and Daniel, Ananias, Misael, and Azarias to Balthazar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But no Jew had ever been called rock because that was reserved for God. The Jews would give other names taken from nature, such as Barak, which means lightning, Deborah, which means bee, and Rachel, which means you, E-W-E, but not rock. In the New Testament, James and John were surnamed Boanerges by Christ, but that was never regularly used in place of their original names. Simon's new name supplanted the old. St. Peter's name has been firmly established by Christ as a name synonymous with God. Throughout Jesus and St. Peter's relationship, the reason became gradually clear, but it becomes crystal clear in Matthew. Immediately after St. Peter proclaims Christ's divinity, our Lord says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This passage seems obvious to most readers. The verse could have been rewritten as, You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. It makes perfect sense that Jesus is here giving St. Peter supreme authority. However, those who want to debunk the papacy and the divine authority it possesses prefer to claim the rock refers to Christ instead of Peter. Grammatical rules tell us that the phrase, This rock, must relate to the closest noun. 
Peter's profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ is two verses earlier, while Peter's name is in the immediately preceding clause. Analogously, consider this artificial sentence. I have a shirt and a coat, and it is blue. Which is blue? The coat, because that's the noun closest to the pronoun it. Obviously, then, the word rock must mean Peter. You are Peter, rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Not only is the reference to rock clear, but we see also that Jesus is giving St. Peter more authority than God has ever given any man, along with some specific promises. Immediately after stating that he'll build the church on St. Peter, Jesus goes on to make an astounding promise, along with an even more astounding reason for doing so. The promise is, the gates of hell won't defeat the church built on St. Peter. This is a promise that the church won't be destroyed by Christ's enemies and that she'll stand until the end of time. Only a divine institution could have such a promise as that. Think about it. There's not one single nation on the face of the planet existing today that existed then. All have either been overthrown and completely remade, or they've been destroyed. Many antichrists have come and gone. The Roman Empire tried to destroy the Catholic Church. So did Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, and even the United Nations tries today. Yet Holy Mother Church is still youthful and thriving, while all her enemies have become dust and ashes. One of the most mighty rulers in the world was the first Napoleon. All of Europe was at his feet. The year 1804 was set for his coronation as emperor, and he invited Pope Pius VII to do the crowning. He tried to persuade the pontiff to move the papal throne to Paris. With high-sounding language and energetic gestures, the conqueror set before the Holy Father the advantages of such a change. How well you act comedy, the Pope remarked. Angered by this remark, Napoleon snatched up a drawing of St. Peter's Basilica at Rome, tore it to bits, and exclaimed, This is what I will do to the church. I will completely crush her. Now you act tragedy, the Pope said calmly. And tragedy it proved to be. Twice Napoleon practically put the Pope in prison. Then he grabbed the papal states of the church. Exactly four days after that move, Napoleon suffered his first defeat in battle, and the Pope, a prisoner, old and weak, knew his rights and duty. When he excommunicated the emperor in 1809, the Napoleon scornfully remarked, Does the Pope think that the weapons will fall from the hands of my soldiers because of his excommunication? A few years later, an army report from the icy plains of Russia read, The weapons are falling from the hands of our soldiers. Napoleon was forced to a disgraceful retreat from Moscow in 1812, and the following year he was completely beaten by the Allied armies. In the same castle of Fontainebleau, in which he kept the Pope a prisoner, the Emperor of the French had to sign his own abdication. Pius VII had, in the meantime, returned to Rome amid the rejoicing of the Christian world. Upon establishing the church on St. Peter's the Rock, Jesus said, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This was a promise that the Catholic Church would stand until the end of time, that no force in hell or on earth could ever destroy her, and that she'd remain in her absolute purity as a divinely created entity. Using the symbol of the keys, Jesus then gives Peter his authority. That symbol isn't lost on us today. Dignitaries receive keys to the city. Business owners possess the keys to their businesses and the authority to run it.
You have keys to your car, and no one else has the authority to drive it without those keys. It's obvious, then, that Jesus is giving divine authority to Peter when he gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and kingdom of heaven is what the church is called throughout the Gospels. This is immediately followed by the power of binding and loosing. Binding and loosing among the rabbis of our Lord's time meant to declare something prohibited or permitted. Here it plainly means that St. Peter, the steward of the Lord's house, the church, has all the rights and powers of a divinely appointed steward. He doesn't, like the Jewish rabbis, declare probable speculative opinions, but he has the right to teach and govern authoritatively with the certainty of God's approval in heaven. A law-giving power is certainly implied by these words. Jesus also made his church infallible. But why? We can answer this with two other questions. Would a good God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.4, fail to provide his revelation with a living and fallible teacher? Would a just God command us to believe all that he teaches under penalty of hell and at the same time leave us to the mercy of every false and lying teacher preaching a gospel opposed to his? No, the church Christ founded is everywhere spoken of in the New Testament as a divine and fallible teaching authority. Because Jesus and his church are one, and because he's an infallible God, his church must also by necessity be infallible. For 2,000 years, from St. Peter to Pope Francis, the church has taught the same faith in perfect continuity without so much as a smidgen of change in her teachings on matters of faith and morals. As Catholics, then, we have a responsibility to obey Holy Mother Church in all matters of faith and morals, because obedience to the church is the only way we know we're obeying Christ. Have you ever wondered why the Catholic Church refers to herself as the mystical body of Christ? It comes from sacred scripture. St. Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ repeatedly, but in order to understand why he does so, as well as its significance, we need to focus on Paul's conversion. St. Paul, who prior to his conversion was called Saul, was a Pharisee and persecutor of Christians. At the time of his conversion, Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians when Jesus appeared to him in his glorified state. Acts 9 verses 3 through 5 says, Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This encounter with Jesus apparently formed St. Paul's theology on the church. Paul saw the church as a divine institution, with Jesus as its head and we as its members. Indeed, Paul saw that Jesus Christ and his church are one and the same. Notice that Jesus didn't ask, why do you persecute my followers? Or, why do you persecute my church? He asked, why do you persecute me? Jesus had ascended into heaven a long time before St. Paul met him on the road to Damascus, so Paul couldn't have been persecuting Jesus. The persecution was of his followers. But that isn't what Jesus said. Christ's words clearly indicate that to persecute his followers is to persecute him. This is why St. Paul taught that we are members of the body of Christ, the church, and he is its head. Paul understood that Jesus and his church are one. 
Since Jesus and his church are one, and since Jesus is God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, then the Catholic Church is a living, breathing, divine body. For a body to live, it must have a soul. The soul of the church is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is why we can say that a true mark of the church is that she is holy. The church teaches holy doctrine and gives her members the means of living holy lives, thus producing saints in every age. The founders of other churches, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Wesley, were but men and in no way remarkable for heroic virtue. Our founder is Jesus Christ, God himself, the author and very definition of virtue. The Catholic Church is holy because of her intimate union with Christ as his bride and his mystical body. Although people outside her fold may, through admissible ignorance, be members of the church in desire and thus share in her divine life, their churches are cast forth as a branch and withers, according to John 15:6. Yes, a mark of the church is holiness, but does that mean we're all holy or that the leaders of the church on the various levels are holy? No, not necessarily. We're certainly all called to holiness, but we're humans who often fail the test, as Paul puts it. For nearly two decades now, the church has been riddled with scandals. Perhaps the biggest one has been the pre-sexual abuse scandal. Many, both in and out of the Catholic Church, have pointed to that scandal and claimed loudly that this is proof that the church isn't holy. That's simply not true, and nobody demonstrates this better than St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis once came into a town to preach on its streets. He quickly learned that the people weren't attending Holy Mass in the town's only parish church. When he asked them why, they dragged the parish priest out before him, along with his paramour and three illegitimate children. While they berated the unfaithful priest, St. Francis quietly got down on his knees before the priest. He stayed in that position until the crowd grew silent. Then, barely above a whisper, St. Francis said, Whether he is good for his own soul, I do not know, but my soul needs him. St. Francis understood that the priest could be steeped in mortal sin, but it was only through him that the saint could receive the sacraments, as Jesus had established. In this episode, I've proven that Jesus established the Catholic Church. There are three primary points we can take away from this. Jesus promised that the church would last until the end of time, that the Catholic Church would teach always and only what he taught, and we're obligated to obey the church and believe all that it teaches if we expect to go to heaven one day. People continue to cherry-pick what they want to believe, but they do so to their own demise. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, he usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the Lay Evangelist Handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. 
I explained the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. Then I get to the step-by-step -step process for sharing the faith. I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to LifeSite News. Two Fox News anchors quashed mention of the ongoing wave of attacks on Christian churches in France on their shows Monday while conducting interviews on the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. With the church burning in Paris and the cause still unconfirmed, Shepard Smith shut down a French media analyst and Neil Cavuto cut off the president of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights after the guests mentioned the church attacks and expressing suspicion that the Notre Dame fire may have been intentional. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to LifeSite News. A young New York Catholic boy's concern after Governor Andrew Cuomo signed one of the most radical abortion bills in the United States led him to initiate a project asking for prayers for Cuomo's conversion that is attracting attention. Nine-year-old Jack, with the help of his father Thomas, launched ConvertCuomo.com on April 10th. Jack has a video message on the website explaining why he created it, and people can pledge to pray and fast for Cuomo. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to LifeSite News. Police arrested a 37-year-old New Jersey man after attempting to carry gasoline canisters into New York's historic St. Patrick's Cathedral. Mark Lamparello entered the church with four gallons of gasoline, lighter fluid, and lighters around 8 p.m. He turned around to leave to avoid church security, but in doing so spilled some gasoline, which guards noticed and quickly notified the police stationed outside. You can read the whole story by clicking on the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 2 Hats off to LifeSite News. A Maryland accountant who immigrated to the United States was assaulted last weekend by two black men who said his support of Donald Trump made him a traitor to his race in an incident whose full details are being played down in national mainstream media. You can read the whole story by clicking on the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 1 Hats off to LifeSite News. U.S. Cardinal Joseph Tobin said in a nationally televised Today Show interview on April 17 that the church's teaching that same-sex attraction is disordered is unfortunate and hurtful language. 
Speaking to NBC's Ann Thompson, Cardinal Tobin suggested that the Catholic Church is in a state of flux regarding how it deals with those in homosexual relationships. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. A horrible crime had been committed in Peoria, Illinois in June of 1935. A 19-year-old girl, Mildred Hallmark, had been raped and murdered by a serial rapist named Gerald Thompson. Rather than submit to Thompson, she suffered death. That morning, she had received Holy Communion. In her purse, she carried a pamphlet with the telling title, The Pure of Heart. Her heroic virtue and example so impressed the murderer, Gerald Thompson, that he became a Catholic before he was executed in the electric chair. Mildred Hallmark did much to impress the people of her community with the holiness of the Catholic Church. She had received strength to preserve the purity of her heart through frequent communion, enough strength even to lay down her life in defense of her virtue. That church, which produced a character like Mildred Hallmark, also opened her arms to the criminal scoundrel who killed her. The Catholic Church is holy because she had a holy founder, teaches holy doctrine, offers the means of holiness, and produces holy people, at least those who were serious about the faith. I'll see you next time, six-packers. And remember, comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.